You are listening to an Unlocked New Models episode. Less than half of our interviews, discussions, audio dramas, or monologues are ever made public. To access all of our content, or to join the discussions in our Discord server, visit patreon.com slash newmodels, or newmodels.substack.com. You're now listening to New Models. Welcome to New Models. The following episode was unexpected. We saw that a rather important figure was making a brief stop in Berlin for back-to-back speaking engagements, so we cold emailed them an invite to the podcast in the slim chance they would read it and have time for us. As well as being a science fiction novelist, journalist, and technology activist, we suspect Cory Doctorow has access to secret biotechnology that makes sleeping no longer necessary, or perhaps enables him to manipulate time itself, stretching mere minutes into hours or days without slowing down the speed of his thought. Because Cory did read our email and agreed to record with us. One of the most compelling cultural critics thinking about the evolving relationships among tech, media, politics, and capital, Cory Doctorow has been a guiding influence on new models since its inception. Many listening will already be familiar with his popular neologisms, not least the recent concept of inshittification, wherein a tech platform launches from a place of highly promising optimism attracting a robust user base, only to gradually diminish the value offer until the product is so bad it's actively harming the user, who is, of course, by then, locked in. Corey visited Berlin last week for the Republica conference to speak about chokepoint capitalism. His recent nonfiction title with Rebecca Giblin on tech's capture of creative labor markets, and as a book tour stop for Red Team Blues, an anti-finance finance thriller published this spring. With that schedule, our recording time was limited, so we jumped right into the deep end and Corey obliged by transforming into a Yadabyte stream of pure human intelligence, mapping out the systemic forces that drive chokepoint capitalism and the normalization of what we might just shorthand as corporate cannibalism. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-host Carly Busta. Our guest is Corey Doctorow. Let's get into it. Okay, so we are recording today. We are so thrilled and lucky to be joined by the Corey Doctorow. Corey, welcome to New Models. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So you're in Berlin for the Republica conference and also as part of your book tour for your new fiction novel, Red Team Blues. But your most recent nonfiction book, Chokepoint Capitalism, co-written with Rebecca Giblin, examines the monopolistic middleman model of the largest internet companies and how they've starved the creative industry for their own enrichment. Yesterday, you and Rebecca spoke on this theme at Republica, showing how the market dynamics of big tech are leading to what you call the inshittification of the internet, love this term. Relatedly, your recent blog post had examined the predatory nature of private equity firms, how quote, quote, fiduciary duty to shareholders, above all, leads private equity to justify wildly corrosive business policy, for instance, bifurcating a waning business into service and real estate components and making the service side pay rent to its real estate side until that service side collapses and the private equity firm can benefit from its sale or repackaging of the real estate, et cetera. You've also brought to light the kind of ridiculously obvious tax loopholes that corporations are somehow permitted to entertain. So, 
on a human level, the fact that any of this is legal makes next to zero sense. And we wondered, how did we get there? Could we start maybe a timeline sketched out of how we got to this point, key moments of economic policy, political change? Yeah. So I'd say that first, a lot of this stuff isn't legal. It's just tolerated, right? Uh And when you go into the actual tactics used for, say, tax evasion detailed in the IRS files or what have you, you find that the actual tactics are not that sophisticated. You have these enablers, you know, big law firms and accounting firms, consulting firms that charge very rich, very bad people large sums of money to cook up schemes that are extremely transparent. Uh And yet the tax authorities don't seem to be capable of doing anything about it. And when you examine the degree to which these are very transparent and easy to pierce, you have to conclude that they don't want to do anything about it, right? It's not just that they can't. And so I think this points to the wider question of how we got to so much impunity, Mm. right? Where either laws aren't enacted or if they are enacted, they're not enforced. And it's not just tax evasion. It's things like the failure to enforce the GDPR and the failure to hold firms to account for selling cyber weapons to dictators or any of these other things that are pretty clearly unlawful and yet go on. And I think the key moment that explains how we got here is the neoliberal turn in the mid-1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, Reagan, Thatcher, Mm -hmm. Mulroney, where I'm from in Canada and other leaders around the world, who in general embraced a kind of counter-reformation to the New Deal and the post-war idea of a social contract. And in specific decided that they were no longer going to oppose monopolies, Mm. that monopolies would be presumed to be efficient, that the evidence that a company was doing something great is that all of its competitors disappeared. Mm. And so when you saw a monopoly in the wild, rather than becoming alarmed or angry, you should welcome it, celebrate it, and nurture it because you wouldn't want to extinguish a company that was so efficient that it could make all of its rivals disappear. And this was in marked contrast to an earlier vision of anti-monopoly, the sort of Gilded Age trust busting idea that, first of all, we should be suspicious of the tactics that firms use to acquire these monopolies. And second of all, that even if we think they're doing a good job, that the monopoly emerges naturally, that we should be suspicious of the monopoly anyway, because when firms reach a certain size, they become too big to fail, Mm -hmm. too big to jail. They are capable of suborning their regulators, capable of meddling in the political process, They make it very hard for us to produce the kind of evidentiary record that we need to make good policy. So if you think about policy as something that's like a little like peer review in the sciences where someone has a question, right? Should we have net neutrality? How poisonous should our water be? (laughs) What constitutes adequate sewage treatment? Is uh, medical intervention safe or not? These are technical questions, right? In a naturally occurring market where you have lots of stakeholders, hundreds of SMEs, small and medium enterprises that are all competing in this, some of them will have some self-serving answers, right? This drug is safer than it might appear. You know, think about the Sacklers and Purdue Mm -hmm. Pharma saying opioids are safer than we thought, right? But then you'd have other people who, for reasons that aren't necessarily even uh, public-spirited, but are themselves parochial, like... Maybe someone who sells an alternative to opioids as a painkiller or as a sedative might come forward and say, actually, here's our evidence to show you why this is not as safe as you think and our drug is safer, right? So you would expect to see this adversarial process that would produce the good evidentiary record that a referee in the form of a regulator could choose. And when the number of firms in the sector dwindles to like three or four or Mm -hmm. five, they become 
intrinsically collusive, right? Just think about being a studio executive in, right. in, in Southern California right now with four giant studios, right? If you're like a VP and you want to become an SVP, there aren't a lot of boxes in the org chart for you. And generally, the way that you end up becoming an SVP is by moving to a rival firm when they have a position open up and you jump over there. So think about even like in tech, Sheryl Sandberg jumping from Google to Facebook because Sheryl Sandberg was never going to be the COO of Google, right? But she could become the COO of Facebook. And when that happens, the social relations between these individuals don't end, right? They right. remain godparents to each other's children, executors of each other's wills, whatever, right? They're just pals. They, they go to trivia nights on Thursdays, right? They're friends, right? Proverbial they, smoky back rooms are real yeah. between all these. Maybe they just have adjacent cottages and they see each <laughs> other at the lake, right? They know each other. And moreover, the business practices move from one firm to the other. In fact, right. that's a reason to poach someone, mm -hmm. right? It's like, how do you run your ad market at Google? Well, I can come to Facebook and tell you how the ad market works. And so these, these practices spread over. And so when, say, a regulator in a telecommunications ministry or department says, is net neutrality good? You've only got like five <laughs> ISPs, right? right? They yeah. all show up and they say net neutrality is terrible. And then you get like small neighborhood ISPs, academics, civil society people who show up and say, no, 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 it's fine. And the big carriers, they turn around, they say like, how many people do you support on your network? Because we got 50 totally. million subscribers, right? Don't listen to these guys. And then, you know, make things even worse. The largest firms, when they get that big, they become very opaque, right? Their mm -hmm. operations become very hard to understand. And so this is one of the reasons that even governments that want to curb corporate power tend to recruit top regulators from within large firms. Hmm. Why you see this revolving door because it's just like, who understands right. how Comcast works except for someone at Comcast? And so, you know, you have this like string of FCC chairs in the United States where Tom Wheeler, the good one who gave us net neutrality under Obama, cable lobbyist. Uh -huh. Ajit Pai, the bad one who took away <laughs> net neutrality, Verizon lawyer, <laughs> right? right? There's not anyone in the pipeline who can come in and regulate. And so all of this combined produces this concentrated corporate power, which then begets impunity and yeah, I don't know how much time we have. I can yeah. tell I've got a story about this if you'd like. <laughs> I mean, maybe yes. Okay, I, I'm, sure. I, anecdotes are always So helpful. in the UK, under the coalition government, there was a drugs czar, the top regulator. It was a psychopharmacologist named David Nutt. Was very, very brilliant. And Nutt was concerned about the fact that there was a duopoly that ran all the spirits and another duopoly that ran all the beer. And that both of them had said in their shareholder disclosures that without binge drinking, they would not be in profit, mm -hmm. right? That the margin all came from people who drank in unhealthy ways. This was an official government priority to curb it. And both sectors, spirits and beer, had developed their own self-regulated curriculum to curb binge drinking that wasn't working. And their argument was it couldn't work. Binge drinking is like a fact of life and adults are making decisions and they're bad decisions, but you can't improve those decisions through interventions. So not being a scientist, designed a randomized controlled trial where he put together his own curriculum and he randomly either taught the drinks industry's curriculum or his own. And what he found was that he could seriously reduce binge drinking with his own curriculum. So they were either not trying hard or not very good or lying, right? So this should have a happy ending because we should just be able to set this up. But one of the things Nutt did around this time is he published a paper in Nature in which he said, 
that cannabis was safer than alcohol, which empirically it is. I don't mm. like cannabis. I'm actually a bourbon drinker, <laughs> but I will stipulate that cannabis is much better for you than alcohol. Alcohol is a, an extremely dangerous drug. We radically underestimate how dangerous it is. And the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, called him up, and in his book about this, he recounts the conversation. She says, you can't compare alcohol to cannabis. And he says, well, why not? And she says, because cannabis is illegal and alcohol isn't. And he says, but why is cannabis illegal? She says, well, because it's dangerous. And he says, but it's not as dangerous as alcohol. And she says, but you can't compare it to alcohol. So he refused to back down and he got fired. So you have this duopoly or two duopolies, spirits and beer, who are engaged in conduct that produces profit at an enormous public expense, the cost of binge drinking to the British economy, let alone the health and welfare of the British people is very, very high, much higher than the profits that they reap from this, mm -hmm. right? This is the definition of corruption is concentrated gain, diffused costs, right? So these costs are borne by everyone. The profits are reaped by a small number of people. When someone comes forward to regulate them in a muscular way that would have limited their profits, they get them fired, <laughs> right? And so like, how did we get here? Well, we let the industry dwindle to two firms in each sector. And as a result, both firms were able to effectively regulate themselves in ways that were contrary to the public interest. And in part, is that because in the 1970s, when this neoliberal policy was coming into being, there was still this post-war glow of that companies take care of their employees and they do good for society. And there was a buffer zone there where the government still trusted in companies or? I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of different explanations yeah. for what happened. So, you know, Thomas Piketty, the French economist who wrote Capital in the 21st Century, he has this idea, which I think is empirically borne out, that the rate of return to capital is always going to be greater than the rate of growth. Mm -hmm. And so if you start with money, you end up with more money, even than the people who do the most things. Mm -hmm. So like, He's got this very good comparison between Lillian Betancourt, who's the heiress of the L'Oreal fortune, richest woman in the world, never did a day's work in her life. Bill Gates, who started the most successful company in the history of the world. And Bill Gates, after he retired, when he became an investor and stopped doing things and just started allocating money. And so Betancourt makes more money than Bill Gates over the <laughs> period that Microsoft was founded to when Bill Gates retired. But Bill Gates makes more money than either of them when he stops doing things and just starts moving money. Incredible. Right? And so the rate of return on capital is always going to be greater than the rate of growth, even under conditions of extremely high growth. And that means that people with capital will just get more and more capital until they have all the capital and then they control their political outcomes. Right. And he says, basically, the two wars were this orgy of capital destruction. Yeah, it wiped out all the poor people, but all the poor people only had 1% of the world's wealth in the Gilded Age. The 1% had 99%. If you wipe out 75% of the world's capital stock, most of that destruction necessarily is gonna fall on the people who have the money, right? Willie Sutton, you rob the banks because that's where the money is. Right. And so the share of capital controlled by the top decile, the 10% richest people, falls by 1945 to this level where in Piketty's view, they can no longer exercise political control. And then in the absence of sufficiently muscular redistributive policies in the 30 years afterwards, the 30 glorious, the 30 glorious years we celebrate as the golden age, the capital reaccumulated. And, and so right. by 75, they're just able to take things over. So that's one explanation. Another explanation is just OPEC. Uh -huh. Right? Sure. You get the Israeli war, you get the OPEC retaliation, you get a crisis, as Milton Friedman says, during a crisis, ideas can move from the periphery to the center very quickly. There's also just this sense that after three generations, something that is quite new can become something that's always been there. Mm -hmm. And so we just forget 
that the reason that companies have become servants of the people instead of the other way around is because we have this muscular policy and we're like, well, we just don't need the muscular policy. We can just let the companies run rampant because mm. we've forgotten what it was like before then. It's just shrouded in the midst of time. It's a bit like, you know, we just renovated our kitchen, right? <laughs> and, you know, you open up the walls and you're like, no one knows what this mysterious vertical uh, <laughs> wooden beam is doing, but we have to check really carefully before we pull it out because maybe it's there to hold up the whole front of the house, right? <laughs> totally. you, just, you just forget what your policy scaffolding is doing after a couple Good of generations. Idea. Yes. <laughs> when it comes to corporate tax avoidance, evasion, whatever, I mean, I wonder how much of this extraction is enabled by the time and friction differential between the fast and fluid private world and the slow grinding public policy world. And how much is just outright complicity, collaboration, corruption of politicians with these bad actors? Well, I think we get a bit of an empirical look into that with Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, LuxLeaks, SwissLeaks, and the IRS files, where you see politicians very thoroughly implicated mm. in a lot of this. So, you know, Upton Sinclair says it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it. You know, when the prime minister of the United Kingdom is married to a non-dom who is avoiding taxes on right. a fortune worth billions, and you ask, are policymakers doing this on purpose or are they just incapable? I think at the very least, we can say even if he was capable, he wouldn't be interested, mm -hmm. right? Well, it'd be hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you look at, again, the nature of the frauds, and they're just not that complicated in, by and large. That's you the know? most striking thing. Yeah. They seem so obvious. Yeah, they really are. And also... Some of them seem like predatory on the people who are hiding the money. So there's this structure that's like, okay, we're going to take all your money and we're going to hide it inside a Scottish trust. But then we're going to make the officers of the Scottish trusts numbered companies in Gibraltar. But then we're going to make the officers of the numbered companies in Gibraltar Scottish trusts. And, and, you, and you're like, you clearly don't think that a Scottish trust is robust enough. And so that's why you've added this Gibraltar layer. So what is adding a Scottish trust layer <laughs> on top of the Gibraltar layer get you, except for a bunch of billings, right? right? If you're like Mossack Fonseca or Instant Young or whatever, you're just like billing by the company you form. And it's just a way to like soak the rich. Like it's very weird. It's millionaires soaking billionaires, <laughs> right? It's, uh, but if we can look at this and say, oh, this is pretty transparent. Why can't the IRS look right, at it and right. say this is pretty transparent? We have this discourse about tax that says, it's the loopholes, mm. that it's actually just very hard. You have this complicated tax code. It gets more complicated every time you try to plug a loophole. You generate more loopholes and so on. Complexity is the enemy of security. But we have many areas of law in which judges are asked to interpret legislative intent when making a judgment. It's not this kind of gotcha game where the legal code runs like computer code, where if you have a single syntax error, then you can right. do whatever you want. The judges actually do like reach in beyond the text of the statute and try to understand the intent. And they have to, right? We have these arguments about textualism and so on that says, oh, no, no, you should just look at the text. But oftentimes the text leaves you with unresolvable questions that have to be resolved through trying to understand intent, right? What the and, Supreme Court is for. Yeah, well, <laughs> hypothetically. I mean, and even the textualists of the Supreme Court do this all the time because there's just no way to make sense of the law purely as a textual matter. It can't, right? So the one area where we're like, you know, someone left a comma out, therefore you don't owe tax on $3 billion <laughs> is in tax law. And so like if we can make the choice in other highly consequential areas of a civil and criminal law to think about a legislative intent when we consider defense, we should be able to apply that standard in tax. And the fact that we don't 
means that we don't want to. Right. Of course, the idea that these companies, left hand paying the right hand, paying back the left hand, tax avoidance strategies are irrational, or that the corporations evading taxes are even bad actors is totally inaccurate if profit is the ultimate good, which it is in shareholder capitalism. Yeah. You see ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance, as an attempt to maybe establish an alternative to the incentive metric of profit, essentially aiming to like retune the fundamental physics of capitalism. But in practice, ESG has proven to be kind of a greenwashing boon for corporate actors. I wonder if you could give us your brief take on ESG and this general incentive strategy of targeting the most fundamental metric to improve corporate responsibility. Yeah. So first of all, shareholderism, I think, is overdetermined. Like what it really is, is a catch-all excuse. Because if I'm the manager of a firm spending my investors' money and I give everybody a raise, I can go to my investors and say, I gave everybody a raise because I think it'll make them more productive. I can also cut everyone's pay and say, I cut everyone's pay because I think they will continue to produce at the current level without needing more pay. Neither of these are empirically testable questions, despite what the Harvard Business Review would have you believe. Even if a firm does give everyone a raise and productivity goes up, or if a firm cuts wages, you know, there's no way to say a priori which one's going to work. And even post facto, when you look back and you're like, profits went up, you can't even know for sure that the profits went up because of what you did. So shareholderism just becomes an excuse for doing whatever the hell you feel like, mm -hmm. right? ESG, you're right. There's a lot of greenwashing in ESG. Carbon credits are kind of exhibit A here, just this fraud riddled market for lemons where you have land trusts buying forests that are already wildlife preserves and can't be logged, <laughs> but then saying we're never going to log this forest and getting a carbon credit. And then the forest burns down and the carbon credit continues to circulate, <laughs> right? Like, you know, this is just like fraud from top to bottom. And really, like anytime you see a carbon neutral business, either they're lying to you or they have been lied to. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that's just not going to happen. And there's an extent to which you know, the five stages of grief, which I'm aware do not replicate part of the psychological <laughs> replication crisis, but they're a useful framework for understanding things. It's bargaining, yeah, right? It's yeah, like, can't we yeah. just keep letting markets decide all of our capital allocation, all of our resource consumption, rather than having some kind of democratically accountable institution that does this. And as we come closer and closer to an undeniable climate emergency, that threatens all of these firms and their bottom line and the survival of everyone who works at them, we get this sweatier and sweatier bargaining, you mm -hmm. know, like, well, how about if we just do capitalism this way? Or how <laughs> about if we do it that way? And, you know, there's a certain degree of realpolitik. Like I read and really enjoyed Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. Oh, yeah, same. And part of that book is like, we just need to give everyone who owns oil stocks that are in the ground trillions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. The people who destroyed the planet need to be given a bribe. And I recoil from that idea. But on the other hand, maybe it will work. But then we've got people who are monsters, who are trillions of dollars richer, who can then use those trillions of dollars to do terrible things. So like, I don't know what the answer is, but I think that ESG really is at best bargaining, right? Yeah. You know, that said, one thing that I'm interested in is ESG funds that are putting money into litigation finance, mm. where you have people bringing massive civil suits against companies that poison their land, particularly indigenous people who have been on the receiving end of the worst conduct from extraction firms, who then just go after them and say, all right, well, you add up all of our lives and all of our land and so on, you get a civil number that's worth billions of dollars. 
seeing that litigation through in a court in the global north is very expensive. There's a case in an article recently about this in the Financial Times where it was representing Indonesian farmers who'd been wiped out by an oil spill. And they literally sent people around on motorbikes to these remote farms that had no roads to them. They had off-road to each farm to sign up each farmer to be a plaintiff in the suit. But then you get hundreds of millions or billions of dollars out of these firms. And what you're doing is, yes, you're getting some justice for the people who've been injured, although not as much as you would if it was just governments doing it and assessing fines and making them whole because the law firm and its investors take a bunch of money out of the settlement. But what you're really doing is you are changing the market dynamics for literally toxic behavior because some of those profits are not going to disappear into fines. They're going to show up in punitive damages and then where you have regimes that allow you to get damages and costs, you get this very weird and interesting dynamic where the more the lawyer spends suing you, the more it ends up costing you when they win. Right. I mean, that's so interesting how you just framed that. I'd never thought of that before that, okay, you can make bumper stickers and come out and protest and all that's fine and good and build community solidarity and that's fine. But what is most effective is to create some kind of legal body, which is like apples to apples to the corporate entities. And so transforming something that's incredibly dispersed and unorganized and showing it in parallel. Yeah. And incentives matter, right? Firms respond totally. to incentives. You know, they don't pollute because they're sadistic. They pollute because it makes the money. You know, it's a cliche to talk about the death camps in Germany. I was but, just thinking of this analogy. But, yeah, yes. but there was a very good review in the American Prospect of a couple of books about private equity that brought up the history of IG Farben's private death camp that was four and a half miles from Auschwitz, which they originally had slave laborers from Auschwitz march to but it was so unwieldy that they bought 25,000 slaves, preferentially children from the Reich to live in this death camp. And this death camp was much deadlier than Auschwitz. Uh, the average life of a slave was only three months. The SS complained to Berlin about the cruelty of the death camp. Uh, and Farben did not do this because they were cruel, right? Auschwitz was the charnel house it was because of cruelty. Farben's camp, was as cruel as it was because it was profitable. Right. Right. And there's a famous story when people ask the extent to which Nazism was ideological versus like sort of military nationalistic. There's this famous example where as the Reich is losing, they divert a gigantic amount of resources to shipping prisoners and concentration camp inmates to death camps to kill them at the expense of uh, military defense of the Reich, right? So this is considered to be a very ideological thing, right? Even when it would have been in their best interest to stop killing Jews, they kept killing Jews rather than saving their own skin. So that's very clearly ideological. I don't think anyone would argue that Farben would have kept killing Jews if it didn't benefit them, right? They just kept doing it to the extent that it was good for them. And they did it in a way that was much crueler and more bloodless. And 24 Farben executives were brought up on charges and all but four were acquitted. And their <laughs> defense was shareholderism, wow. right? We didn't do this because we hated Jews. We did it because we had a duty to our shareholders to make as much money as possible. We were for-profit entity. And so again, like Godwin's law, we're talking about Nazi comparisons, whatever, but these companies are engaged in conduct that is far more sadistic than anyone would do for mere racism, right? You know, I come from Canada where we've had a program of genocide against indigenous people for 450 years. And that program is extraordinarily cruel. And yet, when you look at what mining and extraction companies do in indigenous communities, it's much crueler mm. and much more efficient 
because sadists are also kind of disorganized, right? <laughs> they're not organized around like a super efficient line. process, right? Yeah. yeah, they're just engaging in this sort of disordered conduct. Whereas people who are doing it for profit, capitalism can organize very efficient processes in this way. And so this is all a long-winded way of saying one of the things I worry about with litigation finance is that I can easily imagine a means by which litigation finance driven by profit and mm. not by ethics could be uncoupled from the social goal that we want. It's entirely possible that we can make litigation finance very profitable without making it very unprofitable for bad firms. Right. And so, yeah, it's great that we've got a kaiju to fight the other kaiju, <laughs> right? But let's not forget they're a kaiju, right? They're not on our side, you know? I mean, in your blog post, just as a follow-up, you extend this example to what's happening in retirement homes or in different care facilities. And also we see this starting to creep into digital structures. It's a similar vector of the financial bottom line is this justification that trumps any kind of human thriving or what the presumed goal of such a corporation would so, be. So, I mean, care homes have been periodically rocked by scandals about sadistic individuals who work there, um, interns who beat people up or nurses who euthanize people or whatever, right? This has happened before, but these are, I think, correctly seen as aberrant. No one like set up the home to do this, although some of them may have said, this is a possibility and it would be expensive to prevent it. So we're just going to live with the possibility that this is going to happen. But when private equity takes over these homes, they do things like reduce the number of workers to a skeleton crew or even to zero for long periods. <laughs> and then they say things like, well, you're on a shift that depending on whether or not we can get other workers might be extended to 36 hours. And if you leave, we will swear out a criminal complaint against you for patient abandonment, mm. right? <laughs> and so like, that's a highly efficient, it's not like a disordered, psychotic, frenetic thing that people do because they're gripped by bad ideas or bad brain chemistry or trauma or whatever. That's a thing where people just sit down and they like make a PowerPoint presentation. They have a spreadsheet, you know, they put a number in this box and the number in that box goes up and they're like, we're gonna put that number in this box, right? <laughs> and it's much more cruel than the mere sadism gets you. Totally, because of its organization. Yeah. So fentanyl killed 100,000 Americans last year. And I started to think about it as the metaphor for this current stage of capitalism. Fentanyl and its analogs are a market-optimized ersatz for real heroin. It costs a fraction to produce, is shorter acting, and more difficult to quit. Uh, it's also far more likely to kill its users. The same logic that leads cartels to start selling fentanyl instead of heroin is not some devious criminal logic. It's the fundamental logic of finance capitalism. Mm. It's easy to think of the internet or metaverses VR as maybe a ersatz fentanyl version of life given to the masses as the real material reality is hoarded by the few. You have an uncanny ability to sniff out and make clear this myriad of economic exploits driving inequality and rewarding sociopathy. But I can't help but feel there's a more philosophical, ontological, or generally woo-woo aspect of our condition today that might actually require a more woo-woo solution. Same. I really enjoyed your essay titled The Swivel-Eyed Loons Have a Point, in which you express sympathy with conspiracy theorists in the UK. I mean, as absurd as QAnon is, Epstein really was part of a secret cabal of pedophile billionaires who really did manage to suicide him and get away with it. If you read conspiracy theories like myths or religious texts, 
metaphorically operating on many levels, you'll find some truths in them. Mm-hmm. And conspiracy theories are actually narratively and emotionally powerful enough to motivate people to storm the U.S. Capitol building, while the problems that are threatening people's basic physiological well-being, many of which you very effectively point out, can't even get people to pay attention en masse. So finally, the question, is there a place for deliberate conspiracy theorizing to be like the propaganda or culture jamming of the 21st century? And to just extend, what kind of cultural, philosophical, spiritual tools do you think could actually get people to go through the painful process of metaphorically quitting fentanyl and actually doing something about the parasitic AI of financial capitalism and its CEO human agents that are slowly killing us and the planet? Wow, that's an excellent question. I want to say, you know, fentanyl as a street drug, yeah, it's easier to synthesize than heroin, easier to smuggle and so on. So yes, I think you're right that this is just market logic applied to a kind of laugher curve of narcotic smuggling, right? It's like, how much do you have to spend? How much do you get? Here you are, right? And a locked-in customer and base. And a locked-in <laughs> customer base, that's right. The inshittification of heroin. Yeah, uh, yeah, very true. So I think that there's a psychological trick that is played by every bully, which is the trick of inevitabilism, that all the things that you like about the world are inseparable from the things that you don't like. And if you stand against the things you don't like, then you stand against the things that you like as well. So the best example of this is Matt Borz's character, Mr. Gotcha, where you've got someone typing on an iPhone, like we should make things somewhat better. And Mr. Gotcha is like a Redditor in a fedora, pops out of a a well because he comes out of a well actually and says, uh, and yet you're using an iPhone to say that. Very interesting, (laughs) Mm, I'm very smart, right? As though wanting to have a means by which you and your friends can talk to each other or even organize with each other is somehow not separable from being spied on or extracted or manipulated or abused in some way. Margaret Thatcher, she said, there is no alternative, right? If you if you want to live in a society which has material prosperity, you also have to accept that we can't have labor unions, that we have to let corporations get as big as they want and so on. And, you know, this cites facts, not in evidence, right? It's basically what Dante put over the gates of hell, abandon hope all ye who enter here. And what I think narrative can do, think about science fiction here, which I think you can think of QAnon as a kind of fantasy, right? What narrative can do is not predict a different way of living in the future, but contest the inevitabilism narrative and say like, actually we can imagine ways of separating these phenomena. This is what the Luddites did. They said, yeah, let's have looms, but let's have them operated in ways that are beneficial to workers and uh, share the prosperity. And in particular, I mean, we don't know this about the Luddites because history is written by the winners and the Luddites lost. What the Luddites were really angry about was that these looms were so easy a child could use them. And so their bosses went and kidnapped Napoleonic war orphans from London's orphanages and then indentured them to 10 years of servitude in the dark satanic mills where they were like beaten, starved, mutilated, and killed by these machines. Uh, Robert Blinko is one of the survivors of this, wrote a best-selling memoir that became the inspiration for Oliver Twist. Like mm-hmm. Oliver Twist is basically Luddite fanfic. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so the idea that we can only have machines if we allow children to be mutilated in them is on its face just like wrong. Like it's not hard to imagine a counter narrative. And so conspiratorialism, I think, is always at the intersection of a collapse in trust in institutions and a real world trauma that is caused by the collapse of institutions is very 
dislocating to have these technical, difficult decisions to resolve, like, should I get a vaccine? Is my kid going to be an ignoramus if they go to Zoom school? Is the 15-minute city a prelude to mass surveillance and control? These are like technical questions. And if you don't trust the institutions to answer them, and if you don't have the technical background to answer them, you end up looking to someone who sounds like they know what they're talking about. And particularly if that person can say something that you know to be true that everyone else says is false, right? Like the system is rigged. You know, think about Trump and Clinton where Trump says the system is rigged and obviously he was going to rig it further, but <laughs> he was willing to say it. Whereas Clinton's rebuttal to make America great again was America is already great and always has been. <laughs> right. like, the, like no wonder yeah. people didn't vote for her, no right? I mean, there are lots of other reasons people didn't vote for her, but that is poison, right? You're just telling people like, if you think that the system is not good, don't vote for me because I like it, (laughs) right? And so anyone who the system isn't serving isn't going to vote for the person who says America is always great. Right. We also deprive them of a hero role of being able to fix the system as right. a people, right? right? Which is an important right. participatory role. That's right. And so what I think narratives can do, not conspiracy theories, but narratives can do is they can vaccinate us against the inevitableist story, the stories that says, if you want to search the internet, you've got to be spied on. Or if you want mm-hmm. to talk to your friends on the internet, you got to be spied on. If you want life-saving drugs, you have to accept that these companies are going to leave people to die by pricing them out of their price range. All of these things that are kind of bound up in the helplessness that people feel, we can contest that helplessness, right? And we can contest it with stories, not to predict, but to inspire and also to contest, to, to just make people say, wait a second, I saw you palm that cart, mm. right? That there is an alternative, that these things don't go together. No one came down off a mount with two stone tablets and said, Larry, Sergey, stop rotating your <laughs> log files and start mining them for actionable market intelligence, right? This was a choice. We remember when you made it. You know, people give Google all this stick for don't be evil, but you know, there's a much better thing to be angry at Google about, which is if you go back to 1998, when they published the PageRank paper, where they describe Google, in like the third paragraph, they say, Now, the one thing we're pretty sure of is you can't run a search engine that's ad supported or it's going to all go to shit, right? (laughs) And like the fact that they said that in 1998 (laughs) and then when they had their IPO, they kept 51% of the voting shares and they wrote this letter to the shareholders saying like, we're going to retain control of the company so that our unique and singular vision is never compromised by market Mm. forces. And it still happens, right? (laughs) Red Team Blues. Yeah, as an act of maybe hyperstition, we could say, or functioning in this way of giving us narratives. Um, It addresses cryptocurrencies, this idea of trustlessness and the sort of ways in which we all have lied to ourselves or people have in good faith maybe, but still there's a wetware issue in the trustlessness. Do you want to just connect what we just said to Red Team Blues and your science fiction in general, which is a very important component of the work that you do? So Red Team Blues is a techno thriller. It's my latest novel. It's not a techno thriller in the sense that Bruce Sterling defines techno thriller, which is a science fiction novel with the president in it. The president (laughs) is not in this novel. Um, But it's a novel about a guy called Marty Hench, who's a forensic accountant, semi-retired, 67 years old. He's been in Silicon Valley for 40 years, unwinding every scam that finance bros can think of. You know, when he first encountered the spreadsheet, he was like, I'm going to use this to find money because everyone else is figuring how to use it to hide it. I'm smarter (laughs) than them. And Marty's about to retire. But his old friend calls him back for one last job. He's a guy who's a tech legend, a cryptographer, when crypto meant cryptography, not cryptocurrency, who has unwisely created a cryptocurrency of his own, which because he's very good at his job, 
is now worth more than a billion dollars, but he has even more unwisely hidden a backdoor in the cryptocurrency, the keys to which have now gone missing. And much of that billion dollars comes from drugs cartels, money launderers, and so on. And if their money goes missing, they're gonna show up on this guy's door and flay him alive. <laughs> and so he needs Marty to find the keys. So this is the story about the role that scams have played and finance has played in curdling the dream of technology as a source of human liberation and turning it into a source of human control and manipulation. And it's also a story about trust. You know, I was somewhat traumatized by the cryptocurrency bubble because so many of the people who agree with me on things like we should be more decentralized and more private and censorship on the internet should be harder, all fell into this rabbit hole and we had these big rifts. And at its core, the best thing you can say about cryptocurrency is it tries to replace the squishy, difficult business of figuring out whom to trust, which is the most important thing. You know, who do you give your spare keys to? Who do you trust to babysit your kids? Who do you trust to have a kid with? Or even making society well lubricated. You know, if you get on the U-Bahn, there's not a turnstile because it's a high trust society. I was on this tour with this book earlier this month and I was in Oxford. I nearly missed my train because of the pileup at the turnstile for everyone to feed their <laughs> card through it. Multiply that a million times. And there's just this huge drag on all of us from not being able to trust people. And so the cryptocurrency people are like, we'll figure out how to trust math and then we don't have to trust people. And that means you can even transact with people that you have no basis for trusting because you don't even know who they are. We can have trust across anonymous barriers and so on. And it just doesn't work. That's the problem, right? It just doesn't work. And caveat emptor, which is like part and parcel of this model, has just seen billions of dollars stolen from mm -hmm. people who did nothing more than trust someone who sounded like they knew what they were talking about, who are just trying to secure retirement or find a way to keep their money safe or whatever, and who just ended up being cleaned out by monsters. And when you look at how the movement itself runs, it runs on solidarity, mm. right? Like the watchwords of cryptocurrency, one is we're all gonna make it, <laughs> right? We're, we're in this together. When you listen to people talk about why they love cryptocurrency, they talk about the community, the solidarity, the friendship, the camaraderie, all those things that build trust. And so this is like this very weird thing where people who are sworn to the cause of eliminating solidarity do so through this highly solidaristic means and only really value this to the extent that solidarity is a piece of it. So mm. when you know the Ethereum blockchain's first smart contract was hacked and $50 million was stolen from all the pioneers of Ethereum, they all got together and they said, you know, we've got this blockchain that we've built and it can never be altered, but we are all gonna get together and split this blockchain and reverse a transaction uh -huh. <laughs> that we have sworn we would never reverse. And if you look at the forensics on early years of Bitcoin, which is even more maximalist than Ethereum, there was a long period in which the biggest Bitcoin boosters who all knew each other had sufficient holdings that any one of them or a few of them in concert could have stolen all the Bitcoin. And they didn't because even though their entire worldview is built around this homo economicus, take what you can get, caveat emptor, they also were just ethically committed to Bitcoin <laughs> and did not undertake this action even though it would have benefited them. So even the greed is good people don't act like greed is good. And Yochai Benkler made this observation once about the greed is good idea, which is that even if you go to Wall Street and go down to the playgrounds and you watch the stockbrokers having their toddlers play in the playground, they're shouting, Timmy, share. 
right? <laughs> and even though like their whole orientation is never do that because like nobody wants to live with a three-year-old who acts like an Ayn Rand character, right? <laughs> it's like the worst thing you can imagine, right? Like oh so much of that upbringing is teaching them not to, right? <laughs> teaching right. them not to maximize individual utility and instead to think about the people around them and the duty they owe to them and fairness and kindness, right? And so Red Team Blues is about how much of what we love about technology is about maybe a little patrician or a little bit uh, patronizing view where people really felt a duty to the internet and tried to take care of it. The book is dedicated to my late friend, Dan Kaminsky, who's a security researcher who on three separate occasions found bugs that would have potentially shut down the whole internet and worked with a whole group wow. of people to develop patches, distribute those patches and fully patch all the core infrastructure before the bugs were revealed, right? Not because anyone was paying him, just because he felt this sense of duty to the internet, right? The history of the internet is just full of stories yeah. like that. And so despite the fact that finance has really done a curdling number on technology and the dream of technology for good, the underlying mechanisms are still all driven by kindness, duty, solidarity, mm -hmm. trust, all those values that they claim can be jettisoned because markets can make them obsolete. Yeah, well, let's hope that this book inspires a bit of that kind of thinking on a macro scale. It's a great yeah. place to end. Red Team Blues is available anywhere you can buy books, more or less. I know you're also crowdfunding a audio version of no, this. No, it's already crowdfunded. Oh, it's already it's crowdfunded. Out. It's okay. out. Yeah, okay, Will Wheaton reads the audio. He does an amazing job. You can buy it. Libro.fm, Downpour, even Google Play. They all carry it. But Amazon and Apple, which is just a front end for the Amazon store, they don't carry it. Got it. Well, we'll put all of the details in the show notes. Corey Doctorow, thank you so much thank for you. your thank time you. this morning in Berlin. And yeah. Safe travels. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, my pleasure. We'll have thank to crack you. open copyright and AI big data sets. <laughs> Some other time. time. Exactly. <laughs> Some other time. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, guys. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast, and thank you, Corey Doctorow, for coming on the show. Not surprisingly, Corey has a podcast as well, which you can find on craphound.com, mostly comprising of Corey reading from his recent essays, articles, and novels, and bookended by some additional commentary and updates. It's a great way to keep pace with his prolific output from his excellent blog at pluralistic.com. On the heels of his novel Red Team Blues, Corey has not one but three new books forthcoming this year, including Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, which will be published by Verso. Check the show notes for links to everything. Meanwhile, back at New Models HQ, the reading group for Willem Flusser's Communicology, led by political scientist Kevin Munger, kicked off on Sunday. Word has it that new top models are being scouted in the breakout rooms. In parallel, another New Models incubated group, Collapsology, is getting ready to release a zine and card game synthesizing their multi-year thinking around climate collapse, polycrisis, the actors, and the stakes. We're hoping to bring both these projects to you this summer in some public format late July in Berlin. Stay tuned for details on all. For now, we hope our fellow dwellers of the Northlands are enjoying the 4 a.m. sunrises and late-night sunsets. And our 2023 glow-in-the-dark New Models Berlin shirt is the perfect way to light up even the shortest of nights. You can get one or our 2023 New Models World shirt at shop.newmodels.io. 
Coming up, an interview with artist Simon Denny and a special report, checking in with David Yoakum, Madeline Cash, and Chloe Waif material on the latest from downtown New York's Scene Incubator. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com.